0: As we continue our worship, I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 3 for this message entitled, The Shocking News About Your Greatest Need. Our text for today is John 3 verses 16 to 18, which is a truly shocking revelation that Jesus gives to Nicodemus regarding God's character and his heart for the world as as displayed through the gift of his Son. This passage that is so familiar to many of us is shocking if you are a man named Nicodemus. And if you haven't read the Bible and grown up in Sunday school and all the rest that many of us have. So I trust and pray that as we look at this passage that the Lord will help us to see just how amazing this truth is. Follow along as I read John chapter 3 verses 16 to 18. because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, with this text open before us, we submit our minds and our hearts to what the Spirit would teach us today. Open our minds. Illumine our hearts. Show us Christ. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would give sight to blind eyes, hearing to deaf ears, and life to dead souls. We believe, Holy Spirit, that you and you alone have the power to save and to sanctify, to make these words that are spoken today, Real in our hearts. And so we pray that you would accomplish that. For the glory of Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. What do you need? Oh, well, it depends you might say. What do I need? For what? <laughs> Let's ask the question this way. What do you really need? What is your greatest need what is the need that if that need is not fulfilled in your life the worst thing that could possibly happen to you would happen what do you really need most of you have an answer ready at hand but let's walk through the logic of this issue and speaking about the virtue of contentment in first corinthians or rather first timothy chapter 6 Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You look around the world today and it sure seems like if you have food and clothing, that's about as basic of a need as can be met in the world. You need fuel to keep your body alive on the inside and you need clothing to protect you on the outside. But is survival our greatest need? Is death the worst thing that can happen to you making survival and and sustaining this life our greatest need? Well, it would be if this life is all there is. If death meant the end of your existence that would mean that your uh, that would seem to be your greatest problem and therefore your greatest need would be to extend this life as long as possible whatever is required to do that but my friends death isn't our greatest problem death doesn't mean the end of our existence there is life after death Now if you or someone you know is skeptical about that you could ask them, well, why don't you believe that there is life after death? And you might hear a reply like, well, why do you believe that there is life after death? Your answer could be as simply as, well, there's, there's been many people over the millennia who have died and been dead for days and hours, some of them even buried, and yet they were raised from the dead. So clearly they could not have gone out of existence. And you might hear the response, prove it. <laughs> now you could respond in a number of different ways. You could say, well, what evidence would you accept? That would discern whether they're genuinely interested in the discussion. You could say, well, the way that I know the, there's life after death is because Jesus rose from the dead and he has powerfully transformed my life and I have a, a relationship with him. Or... You want, you could say something like, well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually one of the most well-attested facts of ancient history. So much so that it transformed the history of the world. So much so that it's, there, there's more and better evidence to the resurrection of Christ than that Plato and Aristotle ever existed. So my friend, if you want to deny that Jesus rose from the dead, really the burden of proof is on you. Well, however that conversation goes, the fact is that Jesus rose from the dead and, and since Jesus rose from the dead, that validates everything that he said and did. And what did he say that's relevant for our question of what is your greatest need? Well, he taught that there is a heaven to, whom some, uh, to where some people go and there is a hell to, whom, uh, to where many people go. Getting all my pronouns mixed up here. <laughs> and when you die, As this body is turning back into dust, you are going to be living forever, either in the glory of God or experiencing His wrath. If our greatest need must correspond to our greatest problem, and our life on earth is nothing but an infinitesimal fraction of our everlasting life, then it stands to reason that our greatest need and our greatest problem cannot be bound up in the confines of this life. As basic as our instinct is to live, it pales into comparison to considerations with what happens when we die. Well, Jesus not only taught that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and that we will find ourselves very much alive when we die in this body, He also taught that what happens to you when you die is not a decision that is made at the moment of death. It's a decision that's made in this life. The good news about that is that as long as you're alive on earth, you can do something about your eternity. The bad news about that is the moment you die, there is no second chance. But understand that what happens when you die is not up in the air until you or someone else makes a decision. It's, it's a very well-known reality. And that's where we learn about our greatest problem. Our greatest problem, according to Hebrews 9:27, is this: It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. What will that judgment involve? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the Apostle John had a vision of this judgment on the last day, which he described in Revelation 20 this way, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was in the books, according to what they had done. Now, before you breathe a sigh of relief, thinking that the books of your life will show that you've done enough to to get a pass into heaven. You need to remember that. You are not the one who sets the standard of good to which you will be held to account. God is. So if you want to know in advance. What God thinks of you and how you're faring in this life, you would do well to consider what does God say? How, how does God view us? Well, we get a, a taste of that in Romans chapter three, verses 10 to 12, where it says, "None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. it says, "Together they have become worthless." No one does good, not even one. Said against the goodness and the righteousness of God. Scripture teaches in Isaiah 64, 6, that what we consider to be our good and righteous deeds, God considers to be like cloths that are soiled in biological waste. What we consider to be good is repulsive to God. So here's the deal. There might be all kinds of things that might be good and commendable about you that we would affirm as positive. But there are also facts that are true. Other facts, like Genesis 8.21, where God declares the universal truth of all people. He says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is what God knows to be true about you. And and though we want to argue against that, we can't escape the reality of it. We naturally want to defend ourselves, but in defending ourselves, we actually prove the point because God says that that's true and we want to reject it. And that's evil. But, But we have no defense. You know this to be true about yourself. No one taught you how to lie, but you started lying before you could even talk. Did you do that? (laughs) No one taught you how to steal, but you started taking things out of the hands of others while you were still in diapers. No one taught you to rebel, but you held spontaneous violent protests when you didn't get what you wanted as a child. Though you were cute and cuddly, you are a liar, a thief, and a rebel at heart. And as you grew older, you didn't grow out of that. You simply became more sophisticated in your expression of your sin. You, you learned how to sin, or yeah, you learned how to sin so as not to get caught, or at least in a way that minimized the consequences. And even now that you're grown, you have thoughts about ways that you would love to sin, but the only thing holding you back is the fear of the consequences. And the fact that you would even have those thoughts of ways you would love to sin proves that evil resides. In your heart. So God is right. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And the result of that resident evil in us means that when the day of judgment comes, no amount of good deeds can remove our status, our guilty status before God. It's been said that the moment that we're born, we start the process of dying. In the same way, the the moment we are conceived, we are set on the path to eternal condemnation. This is our greatest problem. As image bearers of God, we have rebelled against him. There is no need for a jury. The judge does not need to spend time in his chambers to deliberate because the verdict is clear. We are guilty and deserving of condemnation. Every day that passes, we are one day closer to judgment. With every fleeting moment that we are ever closer to our sentence. Every attempt to escape only increases your guilt and the wrath that is due to you. Because like the prisoner who fails time and time again to escape prison, his sentence only increases because in the process of trying to escape, he keeps committing more crimes. This is our greatest problem. We are doomed to condemnation and therefore our greatest need is to be freed from that guilt not the emotion of guilt but the status and the reality of our guilt our greatest need is for someone outside of us to step in and take action and release us from this certain end we need an advocate we need a lawyer we If we can't deliver ourselves from the wrath of God, maybe someone else can do it. And that's where John 3, 16-18 helps us. In this passage, we see three shocking qualities of God that address our greatest need. Three shocking qualities of God. The first that we see in verse 16 is God's giving love. God's giving love. The second one in verse 17 is God's saving patience. And then in verse 18, we see his certain judgment. God's giving love, God's saving patience, and God's certain judgment. Remember that we're in the middle of a discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, but really it's it's not a discussion at all. Whenever the camera pans to Jesus, he's revealing divine truth about life and salvation, and whenever the camera looks over at Nicodemus, he's just sitting there scratching his head. This is less of a discussion and more of a private lesson in divine truth given by the Son of God to one of the elite teachers of Israel who doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. But unlike all the other interactions Jesus had with the Pharisees who clearly had no interest in the truth, it seems as though Jesus perceived in Nicodemus a soft heart, and a listening ear, which is why he continued to reveal these truths to him. Now Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, as we learn in verse 1 and 2, which implies that Nicodemus had questions that he wanted to ask Jesus. But we don't know what those questions are because Jesus never let him get into those questions. As soon as Nicodemus greets Jesus, Jesus confronts Nicodemus with the reality that he cannot know spiritual truth because he is not born again and he has not believed in Jesus and that's what we saw in verses 1 to 15. But Jesus didn't stop there. No doubt Nicodemus was stunned by this unexpected revelation by the Son of Man and he stays silent while Jesus radically alters his view of God and salvation and judgment and that's what we see in verses 16 to 18. And let's begin by looking at God's giving love. In verse 16, Jesus says, therefore, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In this verse, which we, of course, studied on its own a few weeks ago, we see the, the giving love of God. God's love is not an emotional love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a, a blind love. God's love was demonstrated through the giving of His Son to rescue those who are perishing. That's a sacrificial love intended for the the good of others. Notice the first word there in verse 16, the word for. This little word is important because it connects what Jesus says here in verse 16 to what He has just said. What He has just said to Nicodemus just a moment ago, must have been a shock to his system. Well, what did Jesus say? Well, we studied it last week, but look again at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, who is the the teacher of Israel, as Jesus refers to him, he's a biblical scholar, he's a professional theologian, he's an expert in God's Word, and he has no categories to understand what Jesus has just said. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Those words put together in that way do not at all connect with what Nicodemus believes to be true about God and salvation. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the word of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews because they cannot conceive of a crucified Messiah. But it's not just a crucified Messiah that they have a problem with. Nicodemus must have been confused by this statement, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And you could almost imagine Nicodemus responding back to Jesus. Jesus, do you want to nuance that at all? Don't you mean whoever among the Jews believes in Jesus? Or do you really mean Whoever To appreciate the impact on these, of these words on Nicodemus, you have to understand that the Pharisees led the nation in ethnocentric and uh, racist thinking. They saw the world through the lens of Jew and Gentile. If you're a Jew, you are a chosen person of God. You're part of the people of God. If you are a Gentile, you are worse than a dog. In the mind of the Jew, to be a Gentile was so offensive to God that if you wanted to have favor with God as a Gentile, you first had to become a Jew through circumcision and ritual washings and submission to the law of Moses. After all, God chose Abraham, and through him and Isaac and Jacob, the Lord established the nation. The rest of the world was left worshiping their false gods while Israel worshiped the one true and living God. The world, Gentiles, hated the Jews. And throughout the centuries, one nation after another mistreated and and abused and attacked and conquered the people of God. The Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and now the Romans were world powers that abused and conquered the nation. Then there were the smaller people groups like the Philistines and the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites and others who often attacked Israel, chipping away at their borders. Then there were the specific cities laid around the borders of Israel who are a constant sort of harassment. Cities like Damascus and Tyre and Sidon and Escalon and Gaza and Ekron and others. And because of the way that these nations brought harm to Israel, the Lord spoke through the prophets and pronounced judgment and condemnation on them. And Zephaniah 2 is just one example other than what we read earlier in Nahum. But in Zephaniah 2, it says, Gaza shall be deserted and Escalon shall become desolate. Ashdod's people will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the coastland, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And it goes on and on and on to declare judgment on Israel's enemies. After so many centuries of being attacked and mistreated by the surrounding people, Israel loved to hear that God's judgment was going to fall upon their enemies. Sure, they knew that justice was coming upon them because of their own sin, but it's always easier to take discipline when you know your enemies are getting it worse, right? Well, the Lord, for His part, He had never expressed hatred for the nations, but Israel interpreted their status as the people of God as a sign that they were Better than everybody else. The Lord had given to Israel the law, the sacrifices and the covenants. No, no one else received those gestures of love and affection from God. The, the Lord didn't establish a relationship with any other nation but Israel. And yet Israel was attacked and persecuted and hated by the world. So that, what did they do? They, they repaid evil for evil and they returned the world's hatred with hatred. And yet here's Jesus in our text speaking to one of the nation's leaders and he says to him, whoever believes on him will have eternal life for because God so loved the world. God doesn't have the hatred for the world that the Jews have. God loves the world. To to one who as Nicodemus would be, who, who would never dream of spending time with a Gentile, being within more than just a few feet of a Gentile, with touching a Gentile, to hear that God loves the world. That is shocking. But there's more shocking news. What, what kind of love is this? It's a giving love. God gave His only Son. Now, the Old Testament has a view as a doctrine, if you will, of the Son of God, even though the doctrine of the Trinity was not made clear in the Old Testament. There are hints at it. You can consider the, the, the doctrine of the Son of God through just three simple passages. There is a divine person in the Old Testament whom God considers to be His Son revealed in Psalm 2, where the Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the Son says in that Psalm, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So God's king, God's anointed one is His Son. And then David writes in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, literally Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David's Lord, who is the coming king promised by God, lives in God's throne room until that time comes when he will be established as king on the earth. In other words, God's son existed before he came into the world. And then the prophet Daniel writes in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like uh, one, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, God's royal son will have an everlasting kingdom. So God's Messiah, God's anointed one pre-existed, and he will live forever. And as you see in those passages, when the Old Testament speaks about the Son of God, it primarily focuses on his role as conqueror and king. That's what Israel expected the Messiah to be. That's what they hoped Jesus would be. You can understand then why the Jews rejected Jesus. They were looking for a commander. They were looking for a general, a, a ruler, a king. And Jesus didn't exhibit any of those qualities as he went, went around teaching and healing. And then he expressly rejected their attempts to make him king. So what Jesus reveals here in verse 16 that the Jews didn't know is that the Son of God would serve multiple purposes. And his first and most important purpose was not to rule on the earth, but rather to rescue perishing souls. And if you think about it this way, if Jesus didn't do this first, when he comes as king, he would have no one to rule over because all would be in the lake of fire. When God gave his son, his son didn't fulfill the expectations of the people, and it wasn't enough for them to just ignore him and disbelieving him they they couldn't simply walk away and disregard him no his extraordinary teaching and his miraculous power elevated their expectations and so when their expectations came crashing to the ground they hated him and they crucified him mark 15:29 to 32 gives us The ability to hear the mocking words that Jesus heard as he hung on the cross. It says those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple, or rather you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, if they only knew. We're familiar with the song, Mary, Did You Know? I think someone should write a song, something like, Israel, If You Only Knew. We have some songwriters and poets in our congregation. Here's an idea for you. may be out there, but I've never heard a song written about the people who mocked Christ as he hung on the cross. They they twisted his words about destroying the temple in three days, or, or rather destroying the temple, but he gave up the temple of his body to destruction in order to rescue them. They scoffed at him, the idea of rebuilding the temple in three days, and yet three days later he rose from the dead. They urged Jesus to save Himself, but He hung on the cross to save them. They urged Him to come down off that cross, but if He did that, they would perish forever. The priests and the scribes claimed that they would believe in Him if He came down from the cross, but He did the greater work of rising from the dead and they still did not believe in Him. So the Jews put Jesus to death out of hatred for him, Jesus, we know, was not a victim. He was, he was in complete control of that entire situation. The night before he died, he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate today. And as he passed around the bread, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. It's not taken, it's given. And then he, he passed around the wine and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of uh, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, Jesus' life was, was not taken from him. He gave it so that by receiving and satisfying the just wrath of God upon himself, he could offer forgiveness and eternal life to sinners, to those who are perishing. That's what we see there in verse 16. God's love is a giving love to save sinners. Next, we see God saving patience in verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Here, Jesus clarifies that the coming of the Son of Man, uh, Son of God into the world, has as its purpose not to condemn, but to save. Why would Jesus need to clarify this? I mean, He's already said that in verse 16. Well, as we've already seen, he needs to clarify this because Nicodemus and indeed all Israel expected the Messiah to come as a conquering king. They they were looking for one to come to cast out the Romans out of the land, establish the throne in Jerusalem once again, and rule over Israel and in, indeed over all the world. Now, it's not hard to understand why they would think this. If you go back to Psalm 2 where the Lord says to the anointed king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It goes on to say Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a, like a potter's vessel. And then again in Psalm 110 where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When that time happens, when he makes his enemies his footstool, it says the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Those and other passages created the expectation that the coming Messiah would conquer and rule and reign. And indeed that day will come. But the Old Testament, what the Old Testament is less clear on is what Jesus makes clear here. And that is that there is, again, more to the Messiah's work than conquering and reigning. And by clarifying this, Jesus really pulls together threads that the Old Testament left loose. Earlier I read from Zephaniah 2, where the Lord proclaims judgment upon Israel's enemies, the surrounding nations. But then Zephaniah 3, we read this. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. You think of the Abrahamic covenant where the Lord tells Abraham that he will be a blessing for the nations. These passages tell us that Those who are not of Israel will one day worship and serve the Lord. But the unanswered question in the Old Testament is, how is that going to happen? How will the enemy of God's people and of God himself turn to the Lord? How will the nations who are so lost in their idolatry turn to the one true and living God? Well, Jesus gives us that answer. And it's verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God provided a savior who would not just be a political and military leader of Israel, but who would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation and and, and language from the wrath of God. The one day God will bring justice on his enemies, he would first come to offer salvation, to offer forgiveness and freedom from the wrath of God and the penalty of their sin. This too is not new, but the Jews forgot and didn't understand this truth. This good news, this gospel that Jesus is proclaiming was also proclaimed all the way back again in Psalm 2. In light of the the coming conquering king, the psalm ends with this gospel appeal. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. To kiss the son is to worship. And so more than a millennia before Jesus came, this call went out into all the nations to come under the rule of, the, of God's Son to serve Him and to worship Him because all those who do and, find, and take refuge in Him will not perish when He comes in His wrath. And this is why Jesus came. He came to offer forgiveness for His enemies. He came to rescue those who were destined for wrath. The condemnation is what everyone in the world, Jew and Gentile, deserves. Jesus came so that anyone who believes on him would not perish but have eternal life. Now it's in this that we see the saving patience of God. Do you know that God is not obligated to offer salvation? Do you know that God is obligated by virtue of His justice to exercise His wrath against sin. Do you know that God is obligated by virtue of His promises to condemn, to bring His just wrath on the earth? But my friends, what He is not obligated to do is to exercise patience and delay His justice. More than that, what He is not obligated to do, is to offer salvation. And even more than that, what he is not obligated to do is to give his own son as the substitute to receive justice on behalf of those whom he saves. This is what makes God's patience so shocking. God should exercise justice, but instead he exercises grace. Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death, which means that the moment that you and I sin, we are deserving to perish under the just condemnation of God. But because we don't perish right away. Romans 2.5 says because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So from the time that you and I are born, unless and until God saves us, we are amassing an ever-increasing weight of judgment against us. Like a, a branch that's brought low under the weight of snow and until it can no longer carry that weight, so the judgment of God hangs low on us. And it's only God's patient hand that holds it back. But the time will come when His Restraint will be removed. In my reading plan this week, I was reading from Numbers chapter 13-14 when Israel refused to go into the promised land because of the bad report from some of the spies. Once again, they forgot who God actually is. And... So in response, God threatens, as he had on a number of occasions, to destroy them and start over with Moses. And Moses exercises his role as a prophet and intermediary. He intercedes for them. And here's what the Lord says to Moses. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test, these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. My friends, that is patience from God. 10 times Israel refused to believe the Lord. They complained against the Lord. They rebelled against the Lord. And time and time again, God did not pour out his wrath on them, but rather he withheld his wrath. And even his judgment, as he describes, there is a patient judgment. The Lord demonstrated that he is indeed a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But make no mistake, though God is a God of slow to anger, that doesn't mean he's obligated to postpone judgment. I mean, just two chapters later, we read about the rebellion of Korah and his rebellion against Moses, and how the Lord judged Korah and his family in the presence of the whole nation by opening up the earth under them, swallowing up him and his family and all his possessions. And then there's, of course, there's Ananias and Sapphira, whom the Lord killed the moment that they lied about their generosity to the church. God is always fully within his rights, fully aligned with justice, and always capable of bringing judgment instantly against sin. But there are times, in fact, we should say most times when he chooses out of his grace to be patient. And why is he patient? Why does he show kindness by withholding judgment for a time? Well, there are all kinds of reasons, of course, in the mind of God. But first of all, human history would have ended with Adam and Eve if God was not patient. But there's an even greater reason given to us in 2 Peter 3.9. Speaking of God's judgment, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's patience is designed to give you more opportunities to repent. To those who think they can sin with impunity without consequences, Paul writes in Romans 2, 3 to 4, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, my friend, if you're living in sin, thinking that you can get away with it and Maybe what's strengthening your confidence is that you have gotten away with it. Know that the wrath of God is is hanging over you and the hand of God that stays His wrath can be removed at any moment. And whether it's removed today or 50 years from now, make no mistake, it will be removed. But the reason that His hand stays His wrath is not so that you can enjoy your sin just a little bit longer, but so that you would come to repentance that you would turn from your sin and turn to Christ before it's too late. God's saving patience is displayed in that Jesus, the Son of God, did not come first to condemn, which He could have done. He came to save. He came to call all people to cast themselves on His mercy and plead for forgiveness and find in Him their only hope of eternal life. Because one thing is certain, and that is that while God is patient, God's judgment is faithful. That's the third shocking quality of God, God's faithful judgment. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In saying that this shows us God's faithful judgment, I'm borrowing the language from verse 19 where it says, and this is the judgment. Judgment there is the noun form of the verb translated condemned in verse 18. The verb, the act of condemnation is the result of the proclamation of judgment. Put it another way, the consequences follow the verdict. That's what the The word judgment really means there in verse 19. It means verdict. It's it's a decision. Condemnation is what happens when God's verdict is guilty. And when God's judgment or verdict is righteous, the result is no condemnation. And in fact, eternal life. How does one receive that judgment? Well, by believing in Him. That's what it says there in verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. The only way to escape condemnation is to believe in Him, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to get out from, the, out from under the impending wrath of God is, is to look to Jesus Christ and embrace the truth that though you deserve death, his, He gave His life to take the place of sinners and out of His death comes life, eternal life. To all who believe. Now, notice the verb tense there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Notice that it does not say will not be condemned, but is not condemned. This means that this is not a future promise, this is a present reality. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you believe in Christ, know that every sin that you commit, which is every day, until the day that you see Christ face to face, the death, Penalty that your sin deserves does not even register on your account because it was already paid for by Christ on the cross. My friend, there's no sin that you can commit that was not already nailed to that cross. There is no debt that Jesus forgot to pay. There's no uncast check lingering out there that God forgot to account for. All the accumulated justice due to you for your sin, past, present, and future has been poured out on Christ on the cross. And as Jesus proclaimed right before his last breath, it is finished. He drank the full cup of God's wrath down to the last drag such that there is no wrath left for you. There's only grace and mercy, and love. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and given your life into His hands, in this great exchange where your sin was placed on Christ, God's faithful judgment on you, the believer is that now you are righteous in Christ and therefore free from condemnation. If you believe on Christ, know that that is true for you today. But there's another faithful judgment that God makes. For you who do not believe in the name of the Son of God, in Jesus the Christ, you are found guilty. Look at the second part of verse 18. But whoever does not believe, he says, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice that this too is in the present tense. It does not say that you will be condemned. So have fun now before that happens. It says you are condemned. This is not just conveying the the certainty of your future condemnation. It conveys that your sentence has already begun. Like Pharaoh of old who hardened his heart in rebellion against the Lord who commanded him to let his people go, and God affirmed his hardness of heart by hardening his heart even more, which was the beginning of Pharaoh's judgment. Romans 1 reveals to us that God's judgment on those who suppress the truth and righteousness is to give them over to their sin. Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Then verse 26 says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then verse 28 says, God gave them up to a debased mind. Listen, just as sanctification is a progressive reality, which is not fully realized until we see Christ, so is condemnation. If you reject Christ now, do not think that someday down the road, you can just as easily turn to Christ. Because the further you go down the path of sin, the harder your heart gets and the more calloused you will be against the truth. My friend, if you do not believe, you are condemned already. The writing is on the wall. The the verdict has been made and it's in the hands of the judge. The, The bailiff stands at your side ready to carry you off into punishment. There's no appeals that can be made. There's no possibility of parole. There's There's no one to commute your sentence. You have but one hope as long as you are alive. No matter how far into the darkness you've descended, no matter how long your rap sheet, no matter how vile your sin, your only hope is to accept the reality of your sin and turn to Jesus. Look to Him who on the cross paid for whoever would believe on Him. Trust in His finished work as your only hope. Plead with God to forgive you and free you from your sin and sentence. Give up the idea that your life belongs to you. And give it up to Him who died and rose again to save sinners like you. And know that, that when you do that, the, the flood of God's grace and mercy will overflow to you. Your sin will be immediately washed away and you'll be forgiven and set free. Not to live for yourself, but to live for Him. It's only by believing in Him that God's faithful judgment on you can change from condemned to not condemned. From guilty to righteous. So do that today. Let's pray. As we pray, the men can come to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we meditate on these truths today, which for many of us are so familiar, we confess how easy it is for us to treat them as old hats. to think of them with such light consideration that they don't they don't push us to live for you in greater ways we so often forget these truths and so we we fall back into patterns of sin we forget these truths and so we shrink back in fear when We're challenged with our faith. We forget these truths and we are shy to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing. Lord, for us who have believed, cause us to see these things afresh in our hearts. To remember that we were perishing, we were lost, we were destined for condemnation. And that there was nothing that we could do to change our path, and yet you came to save us. You came to deliver us and to forgive us. You came to take the the wrath that was due to us upon yourself. Lord, thrill our hearts with these truths and cause us even this week to, to look for opportunities to sing of, these things, to to speak to others of these things, to rejoice together about these things so that we would be a people shaped by this gospel, transformed and live in light of this gospel. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet believed, would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to see the end of their own way and cause them to turn and trust in you? Even now, Lord, as we celebrate your supper, as we remember even more your death on our behalf, would you turn our hearts toward you? Would you increase our conviction of sin so we can turn from it where we haven't yet? Would you increase our joy at the forgiveness that we receive because of your death? Would you increase our anticipation of your return as we long for your presence. So God, be glorified in these things, we pray. Amen.